0: Welcome to Proper Mental, episode 42. And my guest this week is Mr. Dick Moore, who is a mental health campaigner who specialises in emotional well-being in adolescence and young persons' mental health. He's an internationally recognised speaker, and he visits businesses and schools all over the world. And he talks to pupils, teachers, and parents about the challenges of adolescence and the signs and symptoms of mental health disorders. He's also been a rugby teacher a rugby teacher, (laughs) a rugby coach, an English teacher, and he spent like 20 years plus as a headmaster. He's a mental health first aid instructor and a TEDx speaker. And um, Dick is a lovely, lovely man, and he's still very much got that prep school headmaster vibe about him. And I think if I didn't mention it in the intro, and I just said, listen to a couple of minutes, and then tell me what you think he used to do for a living, I think a lot of people would guess that. Um, but yeah, he's a really, really lovely guy, and he talks all over the world. He's done hundreds and hundreds of talks, and I think because of that and because of his own um, passion for what he's talking about, um, he's just really, really engaging. He's funny. He's knowledgeable. Um, yeah, he's just a great, great bloke, and I really, really enjoyed this chat a lot. And we really, really get into it. it like It's a heavy one, and we talk all about the school and the schooling system and how that affects young people. We chat about teenage brain development and how what's going on biologically doesn't necessarily suit um, what's going on societally. Um, What else do we talk about? We talk about the difficulties of being a young person in this modern age, social media, bullying, peer pressure, academic pressure. We talk about how to build emotional resilience through all these sorts of things. We talk about self-harm, We talk about suicide. Um, So it's a deep, deep conversation. Uh, Dick's got his own very, very personal reasons um, for getting into this particular line of, of talking. And we talk about that as well. Dick's very open and honest with his story. And I don't put trigger warnings on any of my episodes. I don't for a couple of reasons. One, because it's a mental health podcast, and if I was going to do that, I'd probably have to put them on pretty much every episode. I'm very aware that, um, you know, this isn't the sort of podcast that you throw on in the, in the background when you go for a nice sunny Sunday drive. You know, most people who listen have some sort of vested interest in the subject of mental health and probably expect it to be a bit challenging at times. There is also um, a lot of studies and research that show that trigger warnings don't really work. Um, So I don't do that for, you know, for those reasons. But I will say that if you're having a, a wobbly day, you know, if you're having one of those days, you know the sort of days I mean, or those weeks or those months or whatever it is, then this might be a good episode for you to skip. Put a pin in it, come back to it in a week when you feel a bit better. I know something that's huge for my, own mental health recovery which is ongoing you know constantly I have to be very careful what I consume and I have to be in the right mood for stuff and yeah we talk about some deep topics in this in this episode but we talk about deep topics with someone who can talk about them and who knows a lot about it so it's not um, it's not doom and gloom it is just part of the wider conversation about mental health in young people I would highly recommend Dick's uh, TED Talk, and I've put the link in the episode notes. Go and check that out. It's called Dancing or Drowning in the Rain. That is a theme. There is a a real theme of optimism in a lot of the things that Dick talks about, and a lot of his talks are called things like learning to dance in the rain and stuff like that. Yeah, they're really, really cool. Now, Dick is one of those rare people who I quite envy who isn't really on social media. So if you'd like to know more about him, if you go to www.dickmore.org, and there's like links to other interviews he's done, there's press stuff, there's links to his talks, there's more about him. Um, yeah, it's all there, it's great. But because he's not on social media, well, I kind of need your help a bit, I suppose, because I usually rely on my guests who tend to have bigger social, pro, uh, bigger social following profiles or whatever the expression is, than I do to kind of share it about and get my download numbers up. So um, if you're listening to this one and you enjoy it and you're getting something out of it, Leave it a review so it jumps higher up the charts. Screenshot it, tag me in it. Share it on your socials. Um, If you've got a friend who you think might relate to some of it or get something out of it, yeah, just send it to them. And yeah, if my... uh yeah, my loyal listeners could just do me a bit of a solid and help me spread this one a little bit. That would be very much appreciated. If you would like to connect to me in any way, um, Instagram is probably your best bet at Proper Mental Podcast. Um, but I do do the other socials a little bit, but Insta is my uh, my main one. Uh, you can go to my website, propermentalpodcast.com. If you'd like to support the podcast by buying me a virtual coffee, you can do so at www.buymeacoffee.com slash propermental. Um and, yeah, where you can, like, give me a couple of quid to keep the podcast ticking over. The link for that is in the episode notes. That's everything you need to know. This is Proper Mental, episode 42, with the incredible Mr. Dick Moore. Thank you very much for listening. Enjoy. I mean, this, the sound sounds good to me.
1: It's whatever whatever you're comfortable with. No, I've I, yeah, stuff. I don't yeah. know where it is and
0: how it is. No, we're good as we are, mate. Yeah, okay. fantastic. Good. Okay. Oh, God. So here we are with another episode of the Proper Mental Podcast. And my guest today is Dick Moore. How are you, mate? I'm
1: good, thank you, John. Very well. Very well.
0: Oh, well, thank you very much for joining me, mate. I really, really appreciate your time. Um, I'd like to start, if possible, with a bit of your your work background, I suppose, particularly your, uh, your career in, in schools, um, because I think that'll sort of lay down a bit of, a nice bit of context for some of the things we're going to talk about, about later. But what was your journey into education, Dick? Uh,
1: I've been a very lucky bloke, Tom. Uh, I had a very privileged upbringing, uh, happy family, uh, couple of sisters. Um, uh, everything was good. We were relatively affluent. Uh, things were, things were good. I mean, not perfect, but then nobody's life is perfect. Uh, but really, really good. And um, having, uh, having gone to university, I went into teaching, um, taught English and rugby uh, for, for for four or five years to start with. Um, then uh, I went off and became a head, a head teacher uh, of a school down near the south coast. And I did that for nearly 23 years. Um, and it all went really well. Uh my wife told me one day that I was becoming uh, uh, grumpy and unpredictable. It's always useful to have a partner that tells you these things. And um, so, uh, and it it was true. I had actually. Um, and so I took early retirement uh, and I became a house husband. Crackingly good job, house husbandry. <laughs> I highly recommend it to anybody. Um, and um, as she was working in a posh girl's boarding school, and so therefore I was living surrounded by 65 teenage girls which was an education having had four boys um but it was it was it was great it was interesting it was fun it was uh, it was good but um we survived there for four years moved up here where i now am speaking to you from wimbledon um and i started doing talks and courses and workshops in schools and businesses and all over the place um from uh, i don't know Hong Kong to wherever. Um, because I'm passionate about this subject that we're talking about. And the reason I'm passionate about it was because um, when we were at Posh Girls Boarding School, the third of my four sons, Barney, uh, took his own life. Um, and given the fact that he and we were a completely normal family, it made me think, I mean, when we, when we were told by a nice policewoman and a policeman in the then head's office. My first thought was, well, what's the point of going on? I'll never be happy. I'll never laugh, smile, have fun. Because how could you? Because the world is now black. Um, and I was pretty damn certain of that. But I thought to myself, well, i better quite like to find out what I could have done differently. You know, as a dad, as a bloke, whatever. So I went on a mental health first aid course and became an instructor, found it fascinating. Um, But that is, uh, that's all I am. So you've got somebody on here who um, doesn't really know what he's talking about. uh, Other than the fact that i spent a lot of time with young people, uh, a lot of time listening to others, reading, watching. And I also do a fair amount of sort of mentoring. So there are, as you'll know, there are plenty of young people out there who, who are struggling but don't want to talk to their mum and dad, sometimes for the best possible reasons. They're not too keen on talking to teachers and they don't want to go to the doctor. But if they just want to hear somebody to listen, then then here I am. So that's that's what I get up to. Lots and lots of talks. Done one this morning to a group of sixth formers down there in Surrey. Um, got one next week to... Um, to a, a big business in, in London, and, and there we go. That's what I do. That's why I do it.
0: There you go, yeah. I think that's I'm, such
1: a- I'm quite happy to talk about any aspect of any of that, including uh, Barney's suicide.
0: Yeah, sure. Well, thank you. I really appreciate your, your honesty with that. I, I think that, that particular um, sector, that, you know, that teenage age, it's such, it's a tricky thing anyway and then to find ways to get teenagers to like communicate is is challenging i think for parents as well isn't it because it's um i know i can my own experience is my own but i certainly would not have been interested um if my parents had kind of like approached me about anything emotional or anything like that i would not have been willing to have that conversation um it's a tricky time isn't it
1: that's probably because you're older than you look tom um, But no, I mean, and you know, even when I started doing this stuff uh, 10 years ago ish, um, even then it wasn't on the agenda. Um, It it is now on the agenda. Um, And we are finding a great deal more awareness, but not necessarily a great deal more action. Um, And you know, the whole teenage, well, the whole brain developed from conception onwards is fascinating the whole development of attachments, um, you know, primary attachments, secondary attachments, the chemistry of it all, the biochemistry of it all is really interesting. And and we know that the the brain in, you know, once you hit puberty, your limbic emotional brain kicks off. It it, it suddenly develops very fast, very quickly. And those emotions are all over. And at the same time, the part of our brain, our sort of cortex, which is about thinking and balancing and using evidence and data and facts to help inform our thinking and our decision-making, is comparatively immature compared to these pesky, powerful emotions. So to help young people deal with the emotions and the difficulties they're going to have needs specific work in understanding what emotions are, how we cope with them, the fact that we're going to have bloody awful days and and some really wonderful days, and the fact that that's okay. But I don't know about you, but I certainly in my day, okay, a long time ago, but I never got taught about dealing with emotions. My wonderful mum and dad, you know, in the 60s and 70s when I was growing up, you just didn't, wasn't relevant, wasn't, wasn't there, was it?
0: Yeah, of course.
1: Whereas, whereas now it should be there, but 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 but.
0: Yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean, did that? Um, you mentioned your your career change from headmaster to house husband. There, um, mm-hmm. did that kind of did that play a part in that that decision? Because you mentioned your personality change. Was that a case uh, of?
1: Did it play a part? Um, no. I think when I'd been a head for about twenty-one years, I realised that. Um, Jolly Dick Moore was no longer very jolly. Um, And um, uh, everything was going famously, but I knew that I wasn't feeling great. And I was becoming irritable at home. And it was my big sister that persuaded me to go and talk to a psychologist. And I was clearly mildly depressed. And talking to him was great. Um, He was terrific. And he talked about pattern break. And that's the reason I retired, because I said, well, I, I can't change my kids, although they were being bloody difficult. I don't want to change my wife. Uh, oh, I could change my job. I was lucky enough to be able to afford to retire early. So, so that's why I retired. The choice of house husbandry wasn't a choice. It was just that I didn't know what the bloody hell to do next. Um, but no, what really changed it was Barney's suicide. That, that's what... That's what was the sort of prime mover in, in everything.
0: Yeah, sure. Inevitably. Yeah. And I was in the, in the build-up to, to Barney's death, was he, was he poorly, Dick? was he? Um... Yeah,
1: well, poorly. Um, it's quite a big word, isn't it? Was he, mm. was he mentally ill? No, he was emotionally troubled. But he was a normal bloke. I mean, all my children, you know, parents nowadays say, oh, my children are wonderful, or they're this. My children were normal. Um, they were you know quite reasonably bright, a couple of them were really sporty uh Barney was sporty, popular he was really cool actually uh, but he was also always quite anxious um way back to um you know when he was very little separation anxiety was um was a problem for him um, so so as he as he got into puberty that became more of a problem, he became more anxious around people. Um, and then he clearly, early early uh, adolescence, he got into, got into girls, and yet he was too embarrassed to talk to girls, so he got online, and that caused him problems. But he developed a relationship, a wonderful relationship, which was, which was terrific, Very he was very happy, but when she dumped him, Which happens due to the cracking girl, um, he couldn't cope at all. And he couldn't or wouldn't engage with anybody to help him engage that emotional part of his brain that was telling him, this is agony, this is awful, to help get somebody to help him think through that emotion and to say, you know what, this is absolute or absolutely awful what you're feeling but it will not be forever because emotions aren't forever. But he didn't want to hear that. Thank you very much. Um, he didn't want to engage. So my big message to, to, to anybody is we all need somebody to engage with to help us think through the emotion when the going gets, when, not if, when the going gets really, really tough.
0: Mm, yeah, and, and I think that's um, uh, such an important point is that when, isn't it? And one thing I really love about the aspect of your of your talks and your work, Dick, is that um it's important to accept that, you know, life is going to be challenging at best. And sometimes it's going to be awful. And we have to uh, like equip ourselves to kind of to ride the wave almost, don't we? To um
1: yeah. and to be able to get through. People it. like me who are seriously privileged and have had a wonderful childhood and and and, and everything's been easy. Okay, my mom died and and that was difficult, but she was, you know, getting on. Um, And there were one or two ACEs, adverse childhood experiences that we all have. But generally, I would have said, if you told me that one of my children was gonna take his own life, I would have told you, I can't deal with that. That's far too painful for me ever to contemplate. I can't contemplate going to the dentist. uh, and and yet, somehow, with friends, family, uh, uh, colleagues, I, it was okay. And I suddenly thought, bloody hell, I am quite resilient. Um, but for most, but you know, for those children nowadays, with that high octane, immediate, demanding, social media driven, um, I don't know that they're that that we're doing enough to equip them yeah. with the resilience needed to cope. In fact, I know we're not doing enough or many schools aren't
0: doing enough. Yeah, because it comes like it comes at us from all different directions. I offer when I talk about my own um, story, my own experiences, I describe it as death by a thousand paper cards. You know, it wasn't it wasn't one big thing with me. It was loads and loads and loads of things over a long time um, that I didn't understand because a lot of them were societal. Um, and then it was one, one event that, you know, which was the birth of my son. That's kind of like pushed me over the edge. But it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't the birth of my son. There was just no room left in my life for something for well, that's like that.
1: I talked I talk this morning to this group of, of, of girls that, you know, what do you do when your head is full up? When actually you think I cannot deal with any single other thing. Um, what do you do? And I asked them. What do you do and it was pretty quiet and I said well I'll tell you what I do you know if, if it's painful I will have a good cry if it's uh if it's if it's if it's something else I might go out go out and have some exercise I might have a beer um uh and you know I might uh, I might read a book I might listen to some music I might talk to my wife I might but we all need those strategies so that you don't get to that point where everything builds up because as you say Tom even if you haven't had a tragedy or disaster everybody nowadays you don't have space to breathe if you if you're not got things going on immediately around you you've got it on social media you've got it on this you've got it on your mobile you've got constant stuff and we've got to help young people to breathe and to to find space to be who they are, not who everybody else wants them to be.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think with young people, it's often the case that we kind of assume that they're doing all right because a lot of these cultural things that really, really have an emotional impact are very normal. We kind of see it as like just part, parcel of being a young person, um, almost something that like, modern you know it's like social media so we say oh well you know they, they were it's always been around they can navigate it so much better than us but the the pressure from social media from schools academically all these things are just coming in from different areas aren't they and, and building that pressure up
1: absolutely right and of course one interesting thing is that my generation and i'm further ahead of, i'm 64 my generation um is frightened of social media many of us we're certainly frightened of the impact on our children Um, and yet the pandemic has taught us that it's absolutely brilliant because it is a means of communication and it's been a godsend, even even a lifesaver to many young people. But are we proactively teaching young people about, are we teaching them balance? Okay, you've got your Snapchat accounts and your this, that accounts and, and great, but, but... Uh, it, there are also dangers involved. And, and as you quite rightly say, many schools' obsession with league tables and, 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 and results means that well-being is being put second. There isn't a school in the country that wouldn't say well-being is important. But there aren't many schools in the country that put it right at the top of their list of priorities. Yeah, I've, sure. been to, I've been to something over 400 schools now. Uh, mm. and I could count. Certainly, know more than a dozen that I think model good practice for the twenty-first century.
0: Yeah, sure. It's also it's very easy to say that well-being is important. Like anyone can say it, right? But to tick actually the
1: boxes you can tick the boxes, but
0: walking the talk. Yeah, sure. So you, when you go into these these places and do your talks. Is the aim to kind of bring awareness to all these things? Is the, uh, the like, how, where do we start? How do we start to make these changes? I suppose I'm asking. Like, how do we even begin to prepare the young people in our lives um, to kind of start to navigate these
1: challenges? Well, it is obviously about education, but education starts at day one. So, um, those preschool attachments are 100% important. Um, with one's primary caregiver, particularly parents, but obviously mothers particularly. But then I think we need to realise, those of us who work in schools need to realise that whatever attachments a child has had before us, we make a difference. If we're prepared to give ourselves and earn that child's trust um, and build a connection with that child so that he or she knows that we like them and we want to understand them, then, then we've got, we're in a place where we can, we can help. And that is just every single teacher at every single level, every single subject, no matter who we are, everything we say, do, and, and are is crucial. And those teachers who say, well, actually I, I was uh, appointed to teach physics, My answer is, yeah, but you're also appointed to build connection with kids. And if you don't want to do that, I'm afraid there's no place in in my school for you. Um, and, And it's not just in having, you know, PSHE lessons or tutor time. It's a question of everything. That actually, when I'm teaching my English, identifying with the young people in my group and... Trying to feel how they to empathise with what it's like being fourteen, um, because it's certainly incredibly different to when I was fourteen. Um, and I think I think that schools need it's a culture. This culture of the school needs to be on building connections. There is a wonderful any of your people that listen to this. There's a wonderful um, thing on YouTube called I sued the school system it's a spoof courtroom comparing basically the guy that's being sued, sued is modern day schooling and it's it's terrific it really is it's very funny but it's very very poignant yeah um, and it's you know we we have to we have to say the most important thing for this young person to function in today's world is to be able to be able to cope when life gets tough to be creative to be able to communicate, um, not just to be able to do simultaneous equations or you know know the causes of the civil war or because those things are now, well, touch of a button, we can find those things out. We can't become creative just by touching a button. We can't learn how to communicate just by touching a button. And I think every single teacher needs to be the teacher of those key social and emotional skills.
0: Yeah, sure. And the, the interesting thing as well, you mentioned like the word skills and skills can be learned. If you can learn complex, um, you know, arithmetic, like you mentioned, but then we can learn these skills, can't we? And then, it, you know, I think we kind of, sometimes our approach to life is that we think that, um, everything is down to luck and whether you have good times or bad times is down to luck and whether you're able to navigate them is purely just time to luck. We'd never really think of it in the, the sort of the proactive way of learning the skills ahead of time to put us in that, in those positions.
1: And the I, I suffered from, I could never do my maths, my arithmetic, I mean that was a mystery to me but of course it shouldn't have been. It shouldn't have been. I shouldn't have felt threatened in maths because I wasn't quite as good as... Um, It should not have been a mystery. And it isn't, as you say, isn't down to luck. You can learn those skills. So those five, you know, um, um, self-awareness, social awareness, self-management, relationship skills, responsible decision-making. These are things that are skills fundamental, not just in education, but in the whole of life. And whilst A-star grades will be useful in getting us into a university or into a job, Those five skills will equip us far, far better with dealing with the slings and arrows that we're gonna face than any number of A-stars. So why don't we proactively teach them? And some teachers will say, well, it's got nothing to do with chemistry, it's got nothing to do with French. It has. Those skills are to do with life.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a lovely way to put it. And if we can, I kind of think if I put myself first, um, then I'm a better father. I'm a better husband. I'm better at my job. I'm better at podcasting. Whereas for a long time I put all these things first, thinking that was the way to be good at them, and that didn't work out too well at all. Uh-oh. You know, if we can really like, um, you know, get ourselves in a really, really good place, then that kind of radiates out. And if you, you know, whether it's through learning or trying to get your first job or trying to go to university, if you're in a really good place, that it just gives you that foundation, doesn't it, to really kind of, um, you know, good things can can start to happen.
1: It does, and of course even today, um, young people feel that, you know, they have to do their GCSEs when they're 16, they have to do their A-levels when they're 18, they have to then probably go to college or university or get a job. And I think it was Stephen Fry said that some of the most interesting people he knows didn't know what they wanted to do until they were 40. And then he went on, he said, in fact, the most interesting people I know still don't know what they want to do. And I, I tell young people is that don't feel, don't feel pushed into it by expectations of your parents and your teachers and society. Actually, you be yourself and that will be a, yes, you do. You, you probably need to be nagged to do some work. <laughs> uh, you probably, you know, be nagged to get a job and, and to load the dishwasher and that's fine, but don't, you know, fundamentally we need to be ourselves and not rush into ticking all these boxes that we feel we need to tick to be successful.
0: Yeah, definitely. Authenticity is something that comes up on this podcast a lot in various guises in different ways, but how to be our true or authentic selves, I always think of it. it's like, you know, round peg, square hole or whatever the analogy is. You know, you can only try and force that for long enough before things start, start one going of the on.
1: things from my generation, when it comes to being authentic, is I think the statistic is 4.1% of young people are non-binary in their sexual orientation or their gender identity. Now that for me, I thought 4.1%. Oh, it's a big, big number. And if you can't be authentic in yourself, if you, are, um, if you identify as a uh, uh, female, but you're a bloke, if you uh, uh, know that you're gay, but don't wanna say anything, the stress of that, um, of not being your authentic self, must be awful. And I think we have come a huge distance and young people in schools now are far more, well, it's not an issue, is it? It's not an issue if somebody's gay or trans or whatever. Whereas to my generation, it's it's still an issue. For me, it's still an issue. Um, not intellectually, but but it is. And therefore I probably, my kids would probably say that if we were one way or another, and we didn't think dad would get it. We can't really be our authentic selves. And that's 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 no good at all.
0: Yeah, yeah. And that's a big societal shift. It's a beautiful thing about the the younger generations coming through in, in a lot of ways they're going to be you know it's going to be a much kinder place in some respects you know and be able to like we've mentioned before kind of wield social media in a much more positive way with with that kindness but i was wondering and it's something i wanted to ask you about as well um when we look at the statistics, they kind of go up. The the big suicide statistic goes up to about thirty five, doesn't it? As the the single biggest cause of cause of yes, death,
1: ten to thirty four years.
0: Yeah. So, and we've got a lot of that is down to this this whole idea about masculinity and this whole kind of um, you know showing weakness. You mentioned before having a good cry, and you know a lot of people aren't either able to even do that or certainly not to speak about it. Does that filter down into the younger generations as well? Is that, is that changing with young people, or are we, is that still an issue? It's a question I ask
1: when I run mental health first aid courses. I'll say to, to teachers, um, you know, are, is the stigma and discrimination around mental health any better or worse than it was 10 years ago? And what I tend to hear is that actually with girls, it's very similar because girls have always had a degree of empathy and a degree of emotional literacy. Um, they say that boys are much better at dealing with their peers, with their mates, much more understanding. You know, if you had, if you were struggling, that I would be much more able to understand, but know better with themselves. So as a teenage bloke, I would still be embarrassed to be different. I'll still be embarrassed to cry uh, now that's so things are changing um and certainly things like uh calm the campaign against living miserably are doing wonders in that respect um there's some awesome you know youtube videos about the pressures of being a man and, and they're really good and really clever and i do think it's changing um but we need to encourage it to continue to change and my big fear is if girls start thinking that they can't be, can't be open emotionally because blokes aren't, and now if they're really going to compete, which they obviously can, that perhaps they'd better keep their mouth shut a bit. And I, that for me would be... A, we need to realise that we're all vulnerable hmm. and that the only thing that's weak about being vulnerable is if we are um, unprepared to accept that actually we may sometimes need help and that actually we need to ask for it when we do if we can't go there, then we're weak, in my view.
0: Yeah, sure. English, and it-
1: young people, you know, vulnerability, of course you are. But that's fine. You can still be a blokey bloke. You can still play rugby, drink beer, and be one of the lads and, and vulnerable. Of course you can.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's really important. I kind of think that ties in as well back to what we said about authenticity. You know, because if you can find, it's very hard to be vulnerable when you don't really know who you are. Because maybe you're pretending to be someone else to cope with getting through, getting through high school. You know, or, or whatever. My wife school was to.
1: reading me something really interesting yesterday about banter, and you know, banter's now got a bit of a bad name, uh, but actually, it was saying how very important banter is. Um, now, obviously. If we're not careful, it can lead to bullying and and inappropriate behaviour. But actually, female banter, this article was saying, and I can't remember who it was by, is every bit as important as male banter. And we need it. We need that gentle, friendly teasing. But the word teasing and bullying have got somehow confused. Um, And obviously, there's inappropriate banter. But I worry that if we can't Okay, so here's the thing. I was do, running a course last week and, and the whole subject of uh, Me Too, Everyone's Invited came up and I made a comment about the fact that we, people need to dress for context and I got ripped apart by um, some of those present for suggesting that anybody should ever tell a girl to wear when she's going on a train across London at night. Or not to tell, but to suggest, and I thought to myself, I I feel I was being branded as one of these predatory blokes for saying we need to we need to protect our ch- our, our young people, we need to make decisions which actually there are bad people out there, or there's this out there, and um, rather than saying well there shouldn't be, we should be saying okay what can I do to avoid that. that and I found myself vilified for suggesting, and I am not. I really, I have great respect for everybody, children, men, women. But I, I, felt, I felt, I felt I shouldn't open my mouth. Hmm. If I can't open my mouth, how can I be authentic? And yeah. you've got to be able to, you know, obviously hate is awful and the whole Black Lives Matter and the Me Too movement are admirable and have got that pendulum much needed, swinging, but we can't allow it to swing too far. It can't allow us to, for us to feel canceled. We have to be able to find a place where we can all be authentic. We can all respect one another. We should all be understand that, that you know, I, I would have to say, I don't know what it's like being a, a, a female. I don't know what it's like being black. I can't remember really what it's like being a three-year-old. I don't know what it's like being 93, but that doesn't mean to say, I don't want to find out. I don't want to learn. I don't want to be, I don't respect those people. Um, And that's one of my current frustrations is that I feel that I can't afford to say anything unless they say, my, my youngest son says, dad, just keep your mouth shut because you'll say something inappropriate. And he's probably right, but I want to be authentic.
0: Yeah, definitely. And it's kind of like, how can people learn if we're so scared of making a mistake that we don't say anything? You just end up with a lot of very ignorant people, right? And,
1: and, and we have to learn from our own experience. We have to learn from other people's experience and opinions and be open-minded to them. And without going down this particular track, We have to learn from history we can't cancel history we have to learn that what was right 200 years ago is utterly wrong now um so that we don't make the same mistakes again
0: yeah sure and uh, you, you know you mentioned context there and i think that in part of the modern world is we talk in hashtags and a limited amount of characters and it's very very difficult Um, But, you know, to to swing it back slightly to to mental health, like to look after mental health, it has to be a multifaceted approach. And it's the same with those sorts of conversations. There isn't one answer. There isn't one answer. There's loads of different answers. And in every individual circumstance, those answers, some are going to be need to be heard more than others. And, um, you know, with mental health, uh, whether it's being reactive or proactive or taking care of ourselves or other people, It's, you know, it is, it's a puzzle, it's an individual puzzle that kind of has to be solved, doesn't it? It's multifaceted. It's not as simple as just saying like, you know, ah, just take this bill or just go for a run or, you know, everyone's different and we need all these things.
1: The two words you've used there, which resonate with me, were proactive and reactive. In reverse order, to be reactive, we have to make sure that those people who are ill or, you know, social care is currently on the agenda, We have to make sure that those people are looked after. And that's a political football. And we have to decide, do we want to raise national insurance in order to pay for this stuff? Should we be doing more? Where should it come from? It's all political decisions, but it's a reactive one. Proactive is what I'm interested in. And proactive is when you don't wait for your 15 year old to become depressed. You talk about emotions. You don't wait until uh, the child in your uh, children in birth till self-harm becomes an issue you talk about dealing with uncomfortable emotion you're proactive and as you said there aren't there's not one answer there are a thousand different answers but they're all answers and I don't think education which is where what I know is far enough to, to try to not only to find the answers, but pose the questions in the
0: first place. Yeah. Do you think that's, um, do you think that's kind of down to um, kind of, I suppose, you know, there's lack of structures and systems in place in these schools, but do you also think like there's a certain amount of, as some of the teachers, are they overworked? Are, is there too much going on? Are they, because if the teachers aren't hitting their results, then they don't, you know, they're, complete. how does that work?
1: And it's interesting in the last year since lockdown, I've been asked to do for the first time, probably a dozen uh, staff well-being workshops. In other words, recognizing that whatever people say about the holidays, teaching is a is a is a stressful job, and yes, they are overworked. Yes, they are. Uh, uh, it's it's like everything else. You add something new into the mix, um, and it it increases the, the involvement. So, you know, there are still plenty of schools that will be able to justify doing Latin and Greek and this and that and the other, but they also want to do PSHE and mindfulness and this and that. So where what gives? Something's got to give, because not only are the kids getting overloaded, but the teachers are getting overloaded. And with all the, you know, I think that what has happened in education with... The idea of, of, of looking at how children learn is really important. But we can't keep adding stuff. We can't keep requiring teachers to grade and test and test and grade um, and level. Them. Because when you're doing that, you're not teaching. You're reporting and recording. And we can't, you know, the, these schools that have two lots of exams every year, what are the children learning? They're getting a bit of practice at exams. But what are they actually learning? Um, and I don't think we do anything light enough of actually saying we need to spend... Actually, we need to look at the whole of education. Ken Robinson, Sir Ken Robinson, did his YouTube talk, his TED talk on our uh, schools killing creativity? And the answer is yes, they are. Because they're trying to put new things in, you know, dance or, or whatever it happens to be. Nothing, nothing goes out. And we should be saying, okay, what do children need to learn? Yes, they need to learn literacy, numeracy. They need to learn, uh, I would suggest, a bit about our history. They need to learn about conflict resolution. They need to learn about communication. They need to learn about, you know, how to think creatively, progressively. Um, but some things have to go. And I would say it's traditional knowledge-giving that can be cut
0: up, cut down. Yeah, there's so many things in like society that just don't particularly serve us anymore. You know, the world has changed and it starts so young as well. I've been thinking about this a lot recently because my son's like five, so he's just gone into year one. He did his first year last year. And I can't believe that age five that he's doing like nine till three, five days a week. It just, it seems like too much. And I, although he's, you know, he seems to enjoy learning numbers and letters and stuff. But I kind of don't really care whether he learns that because he's five, he's got time. But for me, the important lessons are when he comes home and he says to me, oh, dad, I'd like a little fallout with me mate in the playground. And I say, oh, what happened? Who said what? What did you say? And we kind of talk it through because that's what's going to stand him in good stead. He's got all his life to learn how to count. And once he knows what he wants to do, he can work out how much counted he really needs to learn. But it's this sort of stuff, isn't it, that that sort of sets children up better, I think.
1: I think I'm right in saying that... uh the most successful education system in the world is Finland. And there they have much shorter school days, as you were saying, teachers earn a a decent wage. Um, They don't start until much later than our children start. And yet they're achieving more than our children do. And I, as you say, you know, to expect children, I mean, there are schools around Southwest London and elsewhere where they will be assessing three-year-olds. Um, that's outrageous. To assess a seven-year-old, uh, this guy I was talking about, I sued the school system. It starts with saying, um, uh, if you're a goldfish, um, you can't climb a tree, you can't run a hundred meters. You can't expect a child suddenly to be this learning machine, actually playing and talking about falling out talking about what happens when you're feeling unhappy why is your tummy why why do you why's your tummy ache why do your eyes prickle what's going on um these are the important things but as a parent and it'll be interesting to see whether you feel this in a few years time if you live in Wimbledon and you don't take your daughter to ballet to have extra maths tutoring to the hockey club to then oh, well really you're letting your daughter down Hmm. actually they should be able to come home from school and play have a nice healthy tea time watch some telly play a bit more have a nice story read to them and go to bed early
0: yeah i mean that's all i want to do when i come home from work exactly
1: (laughs) yeah what we want to do
0: yeah and yeah so all that pressure starts starts building up so when when you're talking to like teenagers where this sort of stuff does seem to kind of like really get a bit intense because other factors start coming in, you know, life factors and stuff like that. Do you speak to the children about, or the, children, the young people, sorry, that's dead patronising, but do you speak to the young people about start recognising the signs in themselves, you know, that they might be dealing with and kind of how they can start to, you know, little things that they can do? How do yeah. we start
1: that process? Well, I talk particularly about, for example, um, anxiety anxiety and stress and um, what's it feel like what are the symptoms what did you you know I said this morning to, the, to these girls I said who's felt anxious or stressed all the teachers put their hand up but then the girls put their hands up too and I said "Okay, how does it feel and you go through the physical symptoms who enjoys that nobody but it's absolutely crucial we need it 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 motivates us it prepares us and yet and yet it's uncomfortable and there comes a time where it can become dangerous. So we need to modify it. We need to find time to breathe. We need to find time to lie in the bath or go for a run because anxiety is uncomfortable. It is important. We need to learn how to deal with stress. So what do you do? Oh, I have a cup of tea. Oh, I, get, I like baking. Oh, I read my book. I, 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 I play with my cat. I go for a walk. I go riding my, et cetera, et cetera. And then I'll talk about self-harm and I'll say, what is it? Why should somebody cut themselves or burn them, pull their hair out? And it's all about relieving emotional pain. So how do we do that? And I'll say to teachers, what what have you taught your class about how how they will deal with emotional pain when it comes along? Don't wait for it to come. Give them strategies. And most adults have got strategies for those things. But do we just expect children to learn by default we need to teach it and then you know depression you know and I'll say I said this one I said oh well I have to tell you Tom I've been depressed I was really depressed last May Fulham were relegated from the Premier League I mean how depressing was that and I was depressed when I had to cancel my holiday because of bloody Covid and I was depressed when Barney died but you know what I wasn't depressed I was disappointed frustrated and terribly terribly sad That's not depression. Low mood is what you and I feel regularly, and hopefully high mood as well. That's normal. That's where our mates can help. Um, Depression, how do you tell? So I give them a little tool that they might use um, and just say, please don't go around saying, oh, it's so depressing that it's raining, or it's so depressing that... Because you know what? We're using the word incorrectly.
0: Yeah, and that kind of just adds to the, the misunderstanding misunderstanding of it and um, yeah language is huge I've got an upcoming episode about this where we're going to really break down the difference between like anxiety as a feeling and anxiety as a disorder because I think that's really important isn't it
1: it is crucial and I'll say to teachers and parents you know PTSD separation disorder uh, OCD you know there are seven or eight disorder categories which are clinical illnesses that isn't being worried about your exam. That isn't being worried about whether you're going to get the bus on time. Uh, those are those are potential illnesses, and we can't diagnose these. But what we can do is say, "Hang on, I'm a bit. This has gone a bit too far." And a teacher should be able to say, yeah, "Of course you're stressed. You've got your GCSEs coming up. But if it goes too far and you can no longer function, you're no longer turning up. You're no longer doing the things you used to love doing. You're no longer. You're more irritable, grumpy. You're not eating properly. You're not sleeping." then we have, to, we have to get help.
0: Yeah. And I suppose if I we can... The
1: language, the language thing, I'll be fascinated by that because the language I think is so important and it's changed. You know, when I was very little, people used to say suicide used to be illegal, as you, you know. So therefore now we, we're still talking about committing suicide. When else do we commit something Well, we commit crime? So that word is inappropriate. Completely, um, yeah. And so on and so forth. Um, language is I've been fascinated by
0: that podcast yeah I was, I was like anxiety is the classic isn't it people say like oh my anxiety is out the roof and I go well is it or is it because you had four coffees this morning and not enough sleep you know like it, yeah. it's, or, it's... or
1: that actually you've got an interview this afternoon and you're shit scared and and you feel sick fine great yeah. that's what's getting you ready
0: yeah channel um, it
1: if you decide that you can't turn up at all problem
0: yeah, yeah, definitely. And I suppose the other thing with that as well is to, um, can we encourage, by having these sorts of conversations or any sorts of conversations, and by you talking in schools, can we encourage um, young people as well to, like, check on with their friends, isn't it? And, like, look out for themselves and look out for other people. I think that's that's really um, think, important think, as well.
1: I do think that young people are much better at doing that. I went to a school... Um, I won't name the school, but it was in Croydon, and I spoke to Year 12, and um, they were great. There were a couple, a few guys at the back who were too cool to be, you know, who were just landing back. But one of them came up afterward, and he said, one of my brothers, he's a black guy, one of my brothers, he says, he's, he's very cool, but I know he's unhappy, but I don't know that he would want me to say anything. And I said, he would, he would. I went back some time later and this bloke came up and gave me a hug out of the blue. This this bloke, this 16 year old black guy, just came And he said, I talked to my brother. Uh, It wasn't his brother, he was his brother. Uh, And he said, and he said, uh, I think I helped. And I said, I bet that feels good. Um, And so people, young people are getting better at helping themselves, but we're still putting young people. So last, uh, when was it, this time last year, a guy who I met left a, a very academic school, went up to university, middle of lockdown, was on a corridor with five other blokes, not allowed out, food delivered to the door. And four of these blokes decided that the answer was to play plenty of computer games and drink a lot. Fair enough. But one of these guys didn't want to do that and he just retired to his room. Fortunately, one of the other four realised that he was becoming isolated and went to check on him one evening, and found that he had tried to kill himself, and he saved his life by being aware of this bloke in his zone, but not one of his mates, and being prepared to say, "Hang on, I'm just going to go and see if he's okay." Yeah, was, that's a, you know, I find that I find it terrible that they were put into that situation, but wonderful that one of those young people was aware enough and empathetic enough to take some responsibility.
0: Yeah, very much so. That's really powerful. That's really, really um, powerful. Yeah. There's something very nice, very human about it. Yeah, Yeah. definitely. I always like to try and um, particularly when I've done an episode where we talk about some quite sort of serious stuff, I always like to try and end on a bit of bit of positivity on a nice little Um, send and and the reason um how i kind of found out about you and your work dick and why we connected is because i read your chapter in johnny benjamin's book of Hope, which is brilliant and it is a valuable resource for finding podcast guests i can (laughs) certainly say that but um uh, your your chapter is in the compassion section which again compassion is something that it's like a buzzword for me on this podcast but in in that chapter you talked about in the sort of the the horrendous aftermath of, of Barney's death, how you started to see small silver linings and small, um, you know, lovely things in, in humanity. And a lot of your talks are also talked about talking about like learning to dance in the rain and, and stuff like that. And I wonder if we could just sort of, yeah, just as a way of, of wrapping up, if you could, you know, maybe tell us a little bit about about those sort of positive things that you you saw and what what that meant and what that did for you?
1: I think, uh, to start with, today, at seven o'clock this morning, I said to my wife, isn't the world a shitty place? And there are an awful lot of things that depressed me about people. And she said, you grumpy old git. But actually, but you're right. When Barney died, my first thought was, you might as well check out right now because life's never gonna be anything other than miserable. And it's true that an event like that changes, you know, you'll never forget it. Of course you won't, and it will change you. And you don't get over it. But what you do do is you get around it. You can get beyond it. Um, um, and I, I learned that one of my closest friends, All he did, the day that he heard, was he came round, rang on the doorbell, and as I opened the door, he opened his arms, uttered a expletive, oh, and just put his arms around me. Didn't try and say anything. Didn't try and say, you know, oh dear, poor you, what can I do, Can can I help? That was enough. And an awful lot of people I knew were desperate to help, but knew they couldn't, but they were there. My own family, we talked about it. We laughed about it. We cried about it together. In our very, my wife is completely different to me. I would be very tearful and open and doing podcasts. Um, She, when I said six months after Barney died, I said, look, you seem to be, you don't seem to be very sad. And she said, that's because it's too busy. I do my grieving when you're fast asleep i go up past 11 and have a bath and put some candles on and listen to some music and have a cry. That's her way. And so an appreciation that we're all different. But as long as we find our own way of releasing that stuff, and there are so many good people out there. And so many... I don't have any religious faith, but I do have a spirituality that that, that I've gathered, I think, or become... I've recognized since Barney died that that faith in love is amazing. It doesn't come from God. Well, it might come from God or Jesus or whoever, but there is something out there that is ostensibly whatever good means. It's good. And and I have real faith in love. I have faith in the fact that um, I think if God is up there, um, without trying to listen to offend anybody, but if God is up there, I sometimes look at him and I say, if you're up there, mate, I think, I think this is what you get up to. You make awful things happen and then you get good things that come from them, um, provided we learn um, that actually there are silver linings. My silver lining is going into school this morning, talking to 180 sick form girls who are fun and lively and young and energetic and listening to what I'm saying to them. I mean, what a privilege that is. And I would never have been doing that had it not been for the tragedy we went through. And it makes me happy. So it's selfish as well. So <laughs> silver huge
0: yeah and there's absolutely uh, yeah nothing wrong with that level of selfishness at all i think it's a wonderful wonderful thing dick i've enjoyed this so much i like there's so much i think to be said on this subject and um yeah we could have kept going for ages but i really really appreciate your time mate that was brilliant thank you so much
1: it's been a pleasure tom and uh, very very uh, very good fun and the time has flown by so thank you
0: really has off thank you mate
1: all right take care
0: for listening from the proper mental podcast please like and subscribe this five star.